Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategy speaker series on public health. I'm Sandy Mullen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication. Vital Talks is a project of Vital Strategies, a global public health organization that is seeking to reimagine public health towards a world where everyone is protected by an equitable and effective public health system. If you'd like to learn how innovators are tackling the world's biggest health problems, please subscribe to follow the stories that are changing our world. Steve, you did a great set of interviews on from two different perspectives on how the donor dynamics are shaping global health, how our colleagues out there in public health are seeking to change some of those dynamics, and about how philanthropy itself is changing due to the pressures of this moment. Do you have any follow-up thoughts you'd like to share to set up this conversation? Thanks, Sandy. It's great to be back. Uh, I guess I would say not everybody in public health works in a philanthropically funded or donor-funded program. Probably most people work in government or maybe academics. That's that's the majority of our field, but we know that the philanthropic funding has a huge influence on the direction on public health, on investigating new practices um, and, and funding innovations in the field. Um, I, I remember reading a couple years ago, there was some concern that a, a single philanthropic donor was responsible for something like 40 or 45 percent of the World Health Organization's budget. Um, and that that really received a lot of attention and scrutiny. That's a lot, so, yeah. It is. And so I think whoever you are in public health, it's worth thinking about and joining the conversation about how do donor dynamics and how does the system of of philanthropy and donation influence public health and, and how can it lead us to a future where public health is more effective and, and more equitable. So I'm eager to, to give these two a listen with our audiences and then uh, then, then come back and discuss with you what, what you thought when you listened to them. Sounds good, Steve. I'm Ash Rogers, and I'm co-CEO of Luala Community Alliance. And I'm Julius Mbea from Luala, co-CEO. Welcome, Julius and Ash. I know we're going to talk today about upending the donor dynamic and the impact of global funding systems for groups like Luala, but for our unfamiliar listeners, can you start by introducing us to the Lawala Community Alliance? What is its history and, and why is it important? Lawala Community Alliance works in Kenya um, and was founded by a community that felt that it was unjust not to receive good quality care. And so the community, together with two uh, brothers, Fred and Milton Ocheng, banded together to create the area's first clinic. And that clinic founded the basis of addressing some of really deep-seated health inequities that the area was experiencing, very high rates of HIV prevalence, uh, maternal deaths, um, child deaths that could be avoided, and general lack of health equity in the area. Today, Luala serves um, communities across Kenya we work with the Ministry of Health to address issues that affect communities using the community health angle. And our model is built on four uh, pillars. We work with community committees, organizing them and 
working with them to find solutions to these very problems that they are facing just the same way it was with our founding community. We also work with professionalized community health workers, which means that we take government status quo, community health volunteers, and put that together with traditional birth attendants. We train them, uh, make them paid, uh, supervised, and equipped to be able to deliver care in their homes. And we also work at health facilities or health centers where we build quality and ensure that as community health workers generate demand at community level, that demand is met with quality care at health uh, centers. And finally, we rigorously measure our impact uh, to ensure that whatever we are learning can actually inform the broader health system in Kenya and globally. Can you share a little bit with us about what problems, what kind of problems is El Walla uh, solving? And you've described beautifully this community-led, community-driven model. How does that differ from, you know, similar organizations or other organizations out there in the field? And, and why is that important? Our core problem is we see a breakdown in trust between communities in the formal health system. And that's built from real experience of people who have gone into a health facility or have interacted um, with, uh, with the formal health system and, and either been denied access or had a hard time accessing care or the care they received wasn't dignified. Um, and so that's really the core of the challenge. And we see the solution as engaging communities to hold the health system accountable, to be part of the health system, to work collaboratively um, with health officials, with doctors, with nurses, to improve the quality of care that they receive, um, as well as to empower their neighbors, empower neighbors to be community health workers and to be professionalized community health workers, part of that formal health system. We do not seek to be different from our peers. Instead, Lawala seeks to build a movement, to be part of a movement um, uh, that is advocating for health equity, that's practicing community-driven development, um, and that's working towards the equitable professionalization of community health workers. Um, we contribute to that movement um, by really focusing on the community mechanisms that Julius mentioned, which is working through community governance structures and building rigor around community engagement. A lot of times in our sector, we talk about community participation or community engagement as if it's a yes or no. Well, Lawala uses what's called the participatory continuum, and we're actually measuring for any type of intervention or interaction with the community, where does it sit on that continuum from you know, coercion to community initiated? Um, and so we're trying to build rigor and tools around what does it actually look like for communities to meaningfully engage um, in health services and other development services. Um, and we're trying to build research and tools that other folks can use um, to contribute to that movement. Lawala has been successful by any measure um, and become a real exemplar of this model of working, part of that success has been fueled, amplified by the existing funding structures, by external funding, and yet you're advocating for a movement to change how, quote unquote, development aid is funded. 
and I want to hear that, but how would you describe the current system and what are the problems that the current system generates? What does it keep Lawala from doing that you'd like to do and, and other similar communities and groups? One thing I would say is that Lawala has benefited greatly from private philanthropy and that it's really been a movement that's happened in private philanthropy to have funding that's increasingly, though could be a lot more, towards locally led groups um, and to structure money differently. Um, so rather than having project-based, really restricted short-term funding that's hard to plan with, hard to grow with, um, hard to be flexible to community demands with, there's a movement in private philanthropy for unrestricted funding for multi-year funding. Um, we have, we're funded by a lot of folks from the Big Bang Philanthropy Group, um, which is a group of funders who's advocated for just that. Um, and that's been, that's really allowed and fueled our growth. And even when we've accessed larger technical grants, it's really that private philanthropy money that has, um, that is, is kept us true to mission and the funders who've believed in our full mission rather than kind of zeroing in on, on maybe one impact metric that they might have, um, a pet project around. And, there is still a disproportionate amount of money that goes towards Western organizations. We look at our peers um, uh, in locally led organizations that have not been able to grow, that have not been able to capture the same resources, even from private philanthropy that Lawala has. Um, and honestly, at the root of that is a racial bias. It's a bias against organizations that don't have 501c3s, which is our U.S. classification. Um, and it's made it really difficult for those groups to grow. And there's also, you know, no incentives for funders to collaborate with each other. And so they do that only when they feel like they want to. And as a result, we spend a lot of time and a lot of resources catering to the whims of funders and their very particular reporting requirements. Um, and Lawala really has to stand up for ourselves and say, hey, our metrics are actually aligned with WHO metrics and aligned with Kenya Ministry of Health. Where do your indicators come from? Perhaps you ought to use ours. Um, and I know that we have some great we have some great allies in the funder space who believe in that, um, but uh, unfortunately, they're they're still in the minority. So, I mean, a, a couple of the features of you know a, a future where locally led groups, local institutions are funded more directly include what I heard you know more unrestricted funding, aligning and believing in in organizations' missions as they define them, um, having projects that are locally led and making sure that funders are collaborating with each other. Are there other features to this, you know, to your vision? What, what else would you describe in the way we need to change the funding universe in order to make sure that community-led groups are in the lead? Yeah. Um, let's just start from the thinking of the horizon of the funding to start with. Most of the funders, including even private philanthropy, actually fund in years. If you're very lucky, you will have one, two, or three year funding or three years on the very high end. Very few make commitments of up to five years or more. Now, that is not the way our communities think. 
our communities think in generations. They do not think about next year. So Luala, for example, runs our brick and mortar hospital, which was uh, created by our founding community. The desire of that community is that they do not just receive healthcare today. They want their children and their children's children to be able to receive uh, good quality care that they are receiving today. Now, the way funding is structured is that we can only make such short-term commitments that do not align with the aspirations of our communities. And so even just to think about, for example, if a foundation is set up to be perpetual, why is it that funding then is in cycles of one or two years? Why can't it be perpetual commitment to the organizations, for example? So it is those kind of things that I think that philanthropy need to contend with, but also just the general frameworks for decision-making around funding. You said that you know, uh, you've received some of these exemplary types of grants, including Mackenzie Scott's uh, group Yield Giving, which has, I think, very deservedly gotten a lot of attention and is, is creating a kind of pressure on the philanthropic field to give these kind of famously no-strings-attached money. What, what does... What has Lawala been able to do with that funding that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? In addition to the, the other ways that Mackenzie Scott's giving has, has been different, um, it's that it's been big, it's been trust-based, and it's been truly unrestricted. And so to the to the issue that Julius raised of like, we have a brick and mortar hospital that the community wants to have exist for generations, that operating strategy doesn't align with our revenue strategy, which is to gain uh, grants in one and to three-year increments. Um, Mackenzie Scott money, when we received it, we we immediately thought, is this our opportunity to build an endowment? But we're so used to foundation funders telling us, oh, you can use our money, um, but not for an endowment. You have to, it's unrestricted, but you have to spend down this year. So we went back to her team and we're like, is it unrestricted, unrestricted? And they were like, yes. Like, can we use it for an endowment? They said, yes. Can we use it for our cash reserves? Excuse me, ma'am. We're telling you, you can use the money for anything that you'd like. That was a different experience for us that has not happened to us yet in this sector across 40 plus funders. And that money is allowing us to set up an endowment, we're going to match it with other private donations. And it means that the hospital that was created by community um, sacrifice, by community land, by community resources, um, is going to be able to exist and be owned by that community forever. Um, And so that's the power of that type of giving of large, unrestricted, trust-based philanthropy. My experience is that we see philanthropic donors and other donors are run by boards and internal stakeholders, and they feel the pressure for accountability, for return on investment, you know, to, to make sure that funds are well, well spent. And that's the rationale for a lot of the activity and reporting structures and barriers that go into applying for money. How would you answer those concerns about for somebody who's in a philanthropic organization about accountability, about return on investment? What would you say to somebody who's looking for those kinds of things in, in where they place their money? I, I wanted to add a little bit on 
you know, the Mackenzie uh, Scott gift. And one of the things that I think I would just pick out is that, again, the selection process. Uh, there is a selection process that goes into the awardees, and I am not sure how that process is accessible and um, available to everyone. And so I think that is one thing that needs to be looked into because it perpetuates, you know, this inequality that exists in, in the sector. But the other thing uh, to your question about accountability, I think there is a mistake or a mistaken representation or equating accountability and unrestricted funding. Unrestricted funding does not mean lack of accountability because at the end of the day, you still agree on agreed milestones and reporting frameworks and openness um, to probity, uh, being able to go through audits and to be able to present your issues with the uh, respective funders. Now, what we've worked on and we'll continue to work on is the fact that we volunteer information, including uncomfortable information with our funders because we want to be transparent with each other and to know that even if we are going through difficult situations, that they are aware that we are going through those difficult situations. So I would think that for people in our space, uh, that accountability is not just about reporting and metrics, it is also the willingness to say that these things are not working and to be able to bring the funders along uh, those. We produce on a quarterly basis an insider report. That is voluntary information that we share with our partners, whether it is good or bad. And you don't use that for judging us, but it's a framework or a, an opportunity for us to be able to open up and tell you what is working in our organization or not. I would add to that and say accountable to who? So funders can pretend to be accountable, uh, want to be responsible to their money, but who is on your board? Who's setting those accountability metrics? If it's not me members from the populations that you're seeking to serve, then I find those illegitimate. And I find the mask of saying, oh, we have to... Um, restrict and control nonprofits through restrictive grant making, I find that really to be um, disingenuous. If you want to be accountable for your money, that is fantastic. Build a board that's representative of the people that you want to serve. Hire staff that are representative of the communities that you want to serve. Have those staff members and those board members work collaboratively with the organizations who are on the ground. There are some groups who are starting to do that, but that's what accountability looks like. Thank you for underlining that. And I love that you're, um, you, you're talking about power, right? I mean, which is a, something that comes up on our podcast a lot. And you're portraying a world where the implementers, nonprofits, community-led organizations have equal power and accountability is a conversation, not a one-way power dynamic where somebody's reporting and somebody gets to judge. You know, does that meet the bar? And I, I really appreciate that. What, what would you say to funders, um, which is another common thing, whoever specific focus like malaria reduction or reducing cancer and you know they have a global vision of, of maybe a global commitment to some kind of 
area of progress, and yet that may not be represented or may not be top of mind within the communities you're serving. How would you navigate that kind of focus under this new model? I think there's no problem with focus. Find the organizations that that's their core mission or that you feel like are tackling the social determinants of that issue and give those groups unrestricted money. I think there's no problem with having a focus. I think the, the goal should be to do your homework and find great organizations, great local organizations, ideally, who are doing that work well and to give them unrestricted multi-year large grants. And, uh, you know, alongside the way also to recognize how interdependent health issues are, yes, you might want to focus on malaria, but malaria is great, but malaria doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in um, consonance with other childhood illnesses and all that. And so much as there is a focus also, and this is where ecosystem building is important, that you do not just work in isolation, but also work with others that are addressing related or similar issues, and that, that those joint efforts can actually yield. Because it's the health and well-being That's of the individual. That's a great individual. point. Yeah, it's health and well-being of individual. It's not... I can be uh, without malaria, but I'm malnourished, right? You know, so all those things, I think, go hand in hand. Vital Strategies sees this as a, a crucial moment for public health. Um, I'm sure you do too. As, as global health leaders, we're in this, amidst this reckoning around systemic racism, bias, and colonialism. We're, you know, experienced the how the COVID-19 pandemic showed us just how flawed our national and international systems are and who they're leaving behind. And we're you know, seeing the extreme impacts of, I would say, unchecked capitalism or unre- under-regulated capitalism and global systems. I'm just wondering very broadly, how are you, how is Lawala adjusting to this new reality in the post-pandemic uh, or post-introduction of the first pandemic era, what has this moment meant for your organization? I think the core message is that investing in local organizations do actually um, build resilience and actually builds capacities that can respond not just for to current pandemics, but even future pandemics. So there's every value in, in ensuring that local organizations are better equipped, are better resourced, um, to respond to issues that emerge because they understand the context better and can actually respond much more quickly and more nimbly. One trend we've observed is many funders setting up uh, specific funds for local organizations and it's their you know decolonization strategy. But those are small grant programs. And I would just point out that local organizations need big grant programs. Um, And just because folks are local doesn't mean that their organizations should be small. Um, They also have ambition to grow, to change the systems that they're a part of. And they need the same level of big bet funding that exists other places in the sector, but that often isn't aligned with, uh, with funding local groups. Julius Mbeya and Ash Rogers, thank you for taking time to appear on Vital Talks uh, on this issue. And we really appreciate your leadership and your your thoughts on, on, on this incredibly important issue.
Thanks for having us. Thank you, Steve. The second interview of our podcast is with Grace Chiang Nicolette of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, a U.S.-based nonprofit that provides data, feedback, programs, and insights to help individual and institutional donors improve their effectiveness. But first, I want to share that this year, we are looking for sponsors to support our Viral Talk series. Please support us. If you're an organization or individual interested in supporting thoughtful discussions around advances in public health, please drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Grace Chang-Nicolette. I'm Vice President of Programming and External Relations at the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Grace, welcome to the Vital Talks podcast. We've been speaking to public health groups about how they're responding to this pivotal moment in public health and quote unquote development. And an area that keeps coming up is the baked in power dynamics between funders, public health groups and communities. These aren't new conversations, but they are gaining urgency and traction. You study this field Can you share what you're observing about this moment? How is it different than a few years ago and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, 2020 was just a few years ago. And I think that we've seen uh, some really big changes on the philanthropy front since that time. So maybe taking one step back, a little bit of context, you know, for decades, nonprofit leaders have been sharing that there is this power dynamic with funders. And there's also... Uh, this sense in which funders are actually not providing the kinds of funding that may be most useful. Um, So our studies and other studies show that multi-year general operating support is the kind of support that best helps nonprofits to have the capacity to grow and thrive and to serve the communities that they seek to help. And prior to the pandemic, we saw the proportion of funders who are giving that kind of support to be stubbornly low. I mean, despite many clarion calls for change. And what was really remarkable is in 2020, we saw very quickly, as soon as the shutdown happened in the spring, that there was actually a groundswell of discussion, activity, and and actually a pledge that 700 funders eventually signed on to, pledging to move money more quickly in an unrestricted way, you know, loosening up restrictions And it was really remarkable for those of us who've been in philanthropy for a while because philanthropy has been known to be slow to change and very quickly they saw the need and they did change. And what's even more remarkable is many of them have sustained those changes even through now. And so we're hoping that it's not just a blip, but actually a change that's here for good. That's fascinating. And we had multiple big vectors of change, right? We had the, There's a new urgency around um, decolonizing global health, decolonizing finance. We have a greater global movement towards uh, equities, particularly around um, racial equity. And the pandemic kind of laid bare the inequitable impact of social systems that marginalize people. So what are the features of this new kind of giving? You know, how does giving now look different in philanthropists that are embracing this new kind of giving? How does it look different than in the past? Yeah, I mean, it comes in all different shapes, but um, one umbrella label that has been used quite a bit is called trust-based philanthropy. And actually, if you go to, if you Google trust-based philanthropy, there is a a group, uh, a movement that has particular pillars around what it means to be trust-based. 
and I would say broadly that it is both a posture uh, of seeking to trust nonprofits more. So it's a posture of listening. It's a posture of humility in recognizing that uh, leaders on the ground and communities know best what they need. But it's also the tactics, right? So it's also trying to move money more quickly in an unrestricted way. And uh, and this has been really interesting, right? So trust-based philanthropy was percolating even before COVID. But to your point, what we've seen is just that so many people have told us, you know, I knew that racial justice was a problem. I don't think I saw the interconnected nature of things, right? So COVID really laid bare from a public health perspective, the impact of the disparities that already existed that made certain communities even more vulnerable than they otherwise would have been. And so I think that those connecting of the dots and also connecting the dots of, hey, as we as funders, the way that we behave and treat our nonprofit leaders during this time actually makes an enormous difference in the ability for them to get work done. It's interesting. I mean, in, in certainly in, in Vital Strategies, my organization, we experienced this massive pivot in public health from, you know, addressing, for instance, non-communicable diseases through media campaigns to suddenly having the power to you know, work with governments to, to inform people about the dangers of COVID. And we saw that as being impactful. And I think our funders did too. Um, and now we've sort of pivoted back. And I'm, I'm curious that, you know, it seems like most funders and most funding opportunities have some kind of particular issue area they've decided to make an impact, whether it's non-communicable disease or malaria. And but now there's this pressure, as you said, to address interconnected and more fundamental drivers like poverty, racism, or social and political systems that marginalize people and make them vulnerable. How are funders and groups navigating that challenge? And, you know, the flip side of the coin is, you know, are funders feeling like, oh, well, you know, I can't fill the ocean with my, you know, my drops of money. And how are they navigating that tension between balance of focus and impact and addressing more fundamental drivers like racism and equity issues? Yeah. I mean, you absolutely have described attention, right? So funders have to be careful that they don't experience mission creep, um, certainly as they learn that all issues are more or less interconnected. I mean, particularly in public health, I think that the burden of learning um, and really understanding the the scope of the area that they're working in and and where specifically they can make the most impact is the key, right? I mean, we are all in an ecosystem. So funders are also in an ecosystem. There's really no world in which one funder is going to completely solve or move the needle on every single issue. And so I think not only diving deep on their own learning, but actually understanding, okay, who else is doing this and how can we partner how do we stay in our lane? How do we support them in their lane? And I'd say this is very different than like traditional business thinking, right? Where your competitive advantage should be yours alone that you don't ever share with other people. That is actually a recipe for failure in philanthropy. You want to share your strategy broadly. You want it to be very deeply informed so others can adjust um, what their lane is, what your lane is. So it takes a lot of work and it's, it's not really... Uh, built for people who just want to write checks, right, and want to kind of focus on other things, it really does have a moral call to deeply understanding the issues they care about. I'm, I'm so curious about that because my perception about the 
internal drivers of, of philanthropies, which often are run by, you know, titans of industry, by successful business people, as are their boards. Um, and they have a very, often have a very, you know, defined idea of what success looks like. These are people who have kind of bottom line thinking about being very focused, about measuring change. Is that idea being challenged now? Does success look different um, you know, how are philanthropic organizations navigating that? How are, how is this field navigating that, that yeah. sensibility? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think rigor can be in the realm of not just business, right, but also in philanthropy. And rigor is also not uh, at complete tension with trust, right? And so that's one thing that we often talk about is that it is possible to trust your nonprofit and community partners and also to carefully evaluate and understand. And, and actually, great nonprofits love to be evaluated rigorously, right? They come and see our work. Let me show you what we're doing. And so I think that that rigor that comes from the business world is really helpful. Now, where I would say we have to be careful is that it's much more complex, right, in the social sector. You don't have one number like profit or ROI that tells you exactly what you're trying to achieve. In the social sector, you have to gather a whole range of data points, and it's a nuanced picture. Um, and I think that we've seen it's a challenge for some business leaders, and it's actually a really rich experience and transformation for them, too, to see okay, this is a big picture. This is the interconnected nature of things. And we do see leaders really coming alongside communities. Um, what I will say is very interesting is when it comes to foundation boards, some of our studies show that, you know, especially after 2020, the wake in the wake of the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, really a desire to diversify boards from a racial perspective. And what's so fascinating is in our study, we show... We actually find that boards that are more racially diverse and actually more representative of the communities they seek to serve actually tend to embrace more of the trust-based tenants. Like they tend to be giving more unrestricted support. They tend to be releasing some restrictions. And so I thought that was very interesting that if you're having a more diverse board, you're more likely to have um, these tenants of effectiveness. And can we address the other, I think the elephant in the room is Mackenzie Scott. Sure. Um, you know, and her giving and, you know, from, I, I think has shaken the perception that giving has to be constrained or restricted or focused. And it, it seems really completely trust-based. And, you know, from someone sitting on the nonprofit side, it shows that massive giving is possible. Is that, How is that changing the field? What is the impact of that, Ben? Yeah. I mean, this has been one of the most interesting natural experiments in philanthropy uh, that we've seen in a long time. So we're actually doing a three-year study right now on the impact of Mackenzie Scott's gifts on nonprofits. So were there any unintended consequences? Uh, what did leaders say was the most impactful? Um, did it actually move the needle with other donors? And so I think what's really interesting is that there are some ways, in many ways, that she really does embrace these and really embody these core trust principles, right? So in the early rounds of her giving, there was no application process. A lot of nonprofits didn't even know the gift was coming. And full disclosure, we received a surprise gift from Mackenzie Scott. It was a call that came through that our president thought was spam. He forwarded it to a bunch of us. 
one person said, maybe you should just call back. And then literally less than a week later, the money was in the bank. So completely mind-blowing, one whole year of our budget out of the blue, just like that. And of course, her whole focus area has been on equity, right? That's been the lens through which she really has seen a lot of this. So I think a lot of public health organizations that received her gifts, um, that was actually the lens through which she selected them. Now, her approach is not without critique, right? And so for nonprofits that didn't receive a grant, uh, their boards and leaders are rightly asking, wait a minute, what was the process here? Like, how do I raise my hand? And it seems completely opaque. And is this is this fair? And um, and I think that those are really valid questions. The reality is, in typical traditional philanthropy, ideally there is a relationship between the donor and the nonprofit. And here, it, that piece is completely missing, right? And so, in some ways, it is trust based. In other ways. There's no relationship. And so it, it is actually quite different. It's also larger. Her gifts are larger than uh, what most funders can give um, in sort of from a big picture perspective. Now, what's fascinating is, as you know, this round, she is creating an application process, right? So now there's been a lot of call for transparency. So not only has her team created a database of who's received the gifts, now there's an open call, which requires an application. And instead of having a consultant, Bridgespan, vet the um, nonprofits, which is what happened in, in rounds past, there is a committee of community members, um, leaders of, of education and other um, institutions that will be vetting. And so I think she's trying to address some of the concerns that have come out. And I'm just really keen to see what do these... Um, responses to the feedback, does it change the way the nonprofits experience receiving the gift? And, you know, I'll just say also no donor, as I mentioned before, can give the way that she's giving in terms of the size. But I think that a lot of funders are really wrestling with, can I give more unrestricted? Can I give with less strings attached? And uh, I think that's a good thing. And what would your advice be for grantees that want to talk to funders about imbalanced funding dynamics or, you know, burdensome reporting or whatever they see as the, uh, you know, outflow of power dynamic problems? Yeah, I mean, it's really challenging. If you find it really hard to talk to your funders, you're not alone. And that's almost a feature of, of philanthropy and not a bug. I mean, which is why... The genesis of the Center for Effective Philanthropy was us creating in a confidential grantee survey, right? So, you know, now 20 years later, 20 plus years, we've surveyed, you know, over 350 funders, grantees from the Gates Foundation all the way to tiny, tiny family foundations to gather that really important feedback that grantees have. And we often do see you know, onerous reporting processes is always a perennial problem. It's like, are you actually using my reports? Are you reading them? And in the best cases, funders have reporting processes that are actually helpful to nonprofits. The nonprofits will say, you know what? I actually really learned a lot going through this reporting process. It was worth it to me. And so I think we're not saying you should just jettison right? Application and reporting. That's not what we're saying. But there's a way in which it can be right-sized to be both helpful 
to the nonprofit, but also good for stewardship purposes for the funder. And I think that getting that balance right is really challenging for a lot of funders. So if you're a nonprofit, you're not alone. I think um, I would say I would encourage you <laughs> to speak up with your funders. But I we understand that there's a dynamic that it, it feels like, you know, biting the hand that feeds you. Grace, we spoke with a, a, a prior interviewee about endowment giving and how that really transformed some of their plans um, within communities. Can Is this a trend? Can you talk a little bit about how endowments are showing up in the philanthropic world? Yeah, this is actually a growing conversation. Um, in fact, a major public health funder is funding us to do a study of how many funders are using endowment giving as an equity strategy, and that will be out next year. So, you know, look out for that. I think our sense without doing the study first is that it's still very, very nascent, but I think that drawing out the threads of who's doing it, how it's gone, how did they go about it? How do they think about it can serve as a great guide for other funders. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Where do you think the field is going to be in 10 years? You know, how can we accelerate the momentum towards, you know, funding that creates more equity and, and, and more effective philanthropy? You know, it's a really uncertain economic time. And I think with that, there's always a lot of uncertainty because philanthropy can be so tied to the stock market and the economy, which are two different things. Uh, but overall, I would say coming out of the last three years, I feel optimistic. I think that many funders really we're shaken to their core and we're looking at how do my processes reflect my values and how we show up in the world. And there's a lot of really generative conversations going on and nonprofits are actually experiencing those changes even now that the pandemic is waning. And so I feel very hopeful that that, you know, movement towards trust will continue to build and to grow. And I think that that ultimately will result in more and better support for nonprofits. Now, I will also say the macro environment for giving, at least in the United States, is going down, right? If you take out Mackenzie Scott's giving, giving is on the decline overall. And so I think it is a really crucial time for funders to continue to support nonprofits in this way, especially in an atmosphere of uncertainty, of mistrust of nonprofits. And so the way that funders show up can just be so important for the sector as a whole, as well as individual communities. Grace Chang Nicolette, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thanks for having me. My friend and colleague, Steve, you did a great job in really culling from both of these interviews, some really interesting uh, re inflection points about where we are in uh, the power dynamics of donors and nonprofits. And about how so much has evolved since the pandemic, since the reckoning with racial equity in 2020 and beyond, and really letting us all into uh, so many great insights about how much more work there is to do to rebalance that power dynamic, uh, to look at more trust building between donors and nonprofits, and to create much more of a mutual arena for really grappling with the with the root causes of so many of the problems that donors are seeking to address, ironically, not addressing some of these root causes that many of our um, our colleagues out there, and, and certainly Lawala really brought that to the fore, uh, that they're really thinking about 
some of the very grassroots way to start changing that power dynamic and engaging communities in determining what their own destiny should be in terms of um, both public health as well as other connected areas of well-being. So I'd love to hear, I'm sure you've had a lot of follow-up thoughts since those amazing conversations Mm -hmm. and just please tell us. Yeah, I mean, our podcast audience can't see me, but I'm nodding vigorously. I was really excited to draw the through line on these conversations between Lawala's perspective, which is really grounded, as you like, at a village level in Kenya, right? And they've kind of grown from there, um, and they have a remarkable story. People should look them up on the internet. Um, through, you know, what Grace's sort of intelligence about the donors philanthropic community, which to most people, including you and me, is opaque, you know, so it was so great to hear um, from somebody who is working with donors in a trusted way and likely gets to hear their fears, their misgivings, um, and has maybe more an eye towards how donors think and what it takes to change. So, you know, these two things, these two stories are intricate, the future of them are interlinked in in ways that can't be you know, delinked. And it also reminded me that, I mean, you and I have been in this field for quite some time, and we've never met somebody who's not passionately dedicated to their program, whether it's somebody who's funding a program or somebody, you know, in the field. And it reminded me, and I I guess this is ground zero for equity work, that um, inequitable systems can be fueled by well-meaning and well-funded programs, right? That um, it's really going to take some work to kind of um, help some of us dislodge some effective programs and and really rethink them um, from top to bottom. Yeah. I mean, so much of these conversations were about trust-based philanthropy, you know, whether that term was used or not, but, you know, how to, again, shift from a shift away from a real data-driven, outcome-driven, metrics-driven, report-driven way and time-limited way of providing uh, funding to organizations to do the work that philanthropies uh, care about to one where there's much more freedom, there's there's much mm-hmm. more trust, there's much more yeah. belief, a mutual par- like partnership in achieving what needs to be achieved. And one of the things I loved that came out in both of these interviews is that the idea of rigor is not at tension with trust. Yes, uh, you can yes. do evidence-based focus work that is mutually believed in and trusted without someone sort of breathing down your neck and looking at whether you are producing the results or, or the metrics that were expected in the beginning. So I think you know a lot of us in public health come to this work with a real belief in science. And I think mm-hmm. nobody's saying throw out the science, mm-hmm. throw out the, the ev- evidence and the data. I think there's just more of a, if we're really going to make a difference, we need to look at the root causes of so many public health problems and recognize that the, those who are really agile and able to both recognize them and think about solutions and ways to address them include those who are affected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that you know, donors uh, would really benefit from doing a listening tour about. Um, so, I, you know, I just, these conversations just popcorn so many ideas for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm glad to see uh, that the Center for Effective Philanthropy has essentially said that they're seeing a lot of changes in this kind of thinking. So that's really great to hear. 
Yeah, and I, I love, I mean, something I love about this moment is that that everything is being challenged, right? Which doesn't mean that everything has to change, but it means that everything gets to go under the microscope um, if we want to think about how the system change. Even Mackenzie Scott's, you know, very generous, groundbreaking approach to philanthropy. There are voices saying, we want more transparency. <laughs> yeah, Mackenzie Scott, give us a call. Um, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, like I, I find that really, I guess, both challenging, right, because we know there's there's so much inertia built into what, how we approach things now, but also um, yep, I, yep. I feel optimistic about it. And to your point, I also loved in this conversation how like changing the notion of what success looks like to include the voices from the communities that we're seeking to help. How do they decide success? You know, it's um, mm-hmm. certainly more than change among a single metric, whether it's, uh, you know, yeah. percent of people with bed nets or however, you know, you might design a program sort of on paper, uh, which is, I think, where every program, it's a great place to start. But then, you know, making sure that communities have the power to ensure that success has changes their lived experience, I think is really a powerful, maybe newer um, yeah. foundation for a more equitable work. Yeah, it's a totally newer, newer framework. But, you know, I, I also think um, having been in a situation where I, well, the work that I do has benefited from very generous funding from donors, they walk a tightrope. You know, they yeah. are obviously answering to their board, to the folks who lead the organization that they're a part of, and obviously they're answerable to their grantees and to partners. And so it's a complicated landscape. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think a lot of very well-meaning people are uh, in philanthropy, whether it's public or private philanthropy. And a lot of these new ideas are going to take some time to really uh, germinate and to and to get into action. And, and I think you really asked these questions uh, a few times, again, this balance between, or the fact that they're not mutually exclusive, the idea of rigor and evidence and more freedom in, in giving. Um, but it is a tightrope between having to report to so many others about how well uh, the, the giving has gone uh, mm-hmm. versus um, just letting things sort of flow and fly and yeah. let's see how it works out at the very end. So I, I, I sympathize. I certainly sympathize with, with philanthropies as well. But again, it's, it's great to see that these conversations are being had um, uh, in important circles, uh, because this, some of this really could yeah. benefit from change. Yeah, I, I think you and I, you know, we've just launched this new alcohol program, which is groundbreaking. And, you know, it has yep. limited resources. And yet, we recognize, especially in this field, that's totally underfunded, under-resourced, given the given the impact that you know harmful alcohol use has on global public health. But we can't boil the ocean, right? Even we're sort of feeling the need to really, really narrow down with our partners, working very, you know, iteratively with our partners to say how what the success looks like. That tension is real, and I and I thought, um, you know. Grace had a thoughtful answer, which is, you know, recognizing the inequitable drivers. Is there, are, are there new partnerships that have to be formed so that your work is complementing? Because, you know, again, alcohol has socioeconomic drivers, 
our program is never going to touch poverty as an issue. We just can't. We have very limited funding. So like what you were talking about, the, the tension there, you know, how do you focus, have real impact, and then also navigate the larger context? It is going to take a long time, right. I think, to identify yeah. new practices that, that help us navigate that better. There is this concept of, of winnable battles in public health, right? Things that you can you can come up with a really strong goal and objective, and you can measure the impact. You know, I'm going to save X number of lives, uh, though we don't like that framing. Um, but but the idea that th- this is how many people will live longer, this is how many this is how many fewer injuries there will be, illnesses, etc., and very quantifiable public health topics that many of us are so accustomed to working on. When you know, ironically. The root causes of, of everything that we're working on is racism, poverty, homelessness, all sorts of inequities that are really underpinning the problems that we work on. And so we're not going to solve this probably in, in the next, uh, in the next, certainly not in this podcast, Steve, but, and certainly not <laughs> in, in, the next, uh, in the next couple of years. But I think having these issues on the radar of decision makers, boards, uh, Luwala's, uh, you know, comment about accountability and who are these organizations that we're all working with accountable to? And, uh, and, and the idea that many boards are comprised of, you know, good for people for joining these boards. It's not an easy job. And I'm certainly not um, criticizing any individual, but some of them are doing it because it's good to do that. It's good to give. And it's good to be a part of something that maybe is bigger than the day-to-day work that one has. But on the other hand, does a board member who lives in Manhattan know very much about what's mm-hmm. happening in the Nairobi slums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that idea of that dissonance and that disconnect is one of the things that I think Luwala is um, rightly pointing out um, and wanting to sort of see change, at least in the consciousness of the way um, and the mindsets mm-hmm. of, of the donor community. Yeah. Well, just to close us out a bit, I think you previewed one of the themes I think you know that we're thinking about investigating, which is data and inequity, not just how data can hide inequity, but also that, you know, sometimes maybe collecting more data isn't the thing that we need to do, even though, like, how do we contend with this very science data rigor base of public health and is it sometimes, do we have to change our practices? Is it sometimes hiding inequity? Are there sometimes um, where we might think, you know, collecting more data isn't the thing? Um, so I'm really looking yeah. forward to that, you know, as we use this podcast to see what's what's new and who's reimagining some of these very fundamental approaches. Yeah, and as, as, as one of, you know, someone said, it's it's sort of not either or, it's both, both and, right? Yeah, we need right. data, but we also need to be innovative and progressive and and think about new ways of doing things and really taking, you know, all of the sort of uh, reckonings that we're having, whether it's with colonialism, racism, thinking about some of the, the other uh, uh, real inequities that are, that have really shrouded so much of what we do, not just in this work, but in so much of the ways we, we connect as, as communities. So I think we'll wrap this conversation there. So listeners, we have more interesting topics and guests coming on the Vital Talks podcast. If you're interested in how global health can become more effective or enjoy today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We're also kicking off our live event series happening in New York City 
where we are bringing together thought leaders to do a deep dive on public health topics, followed by a relaxing social hour. Our first event is on May 31st, and that is going to be devoted to digging in on gender-based violence and the importance of data. You can find out about all of these Vital Strategies events at vitalstrategies.org, and you should subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can sign up for news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests, like NCD prevention, urban health, environmental health, and much, much more. If you have any feedbacks or thoughts, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sandy.